It's an honor and a privilege and a pleasure to be here. And uh, thank goodness uh, being so cold outside that uh, you're brought here where you can be cozy and cuddle up a little bit and get a little warmer uh, before going back out into the ice storm uh, there. Uh, speaking of a storm, and no double entendre intended, uh, uh, we're focusing on a, a part of the planet that uh, has a geopolitical storm uh, swirling around it. And it's not entirely of its own makings because this particular region does not exist unto itself. Uh, it does and it doesn't. Uh, it does because there are eight countries, seven of them are Arab, one is Iran, and uh, the eight of them uh, sit astride or on top of uh, a minimum of one-third of the uh, hydrocarbon fuels, the energy that drives the engine of the world's economy, therefore people's standards of living, their ability to meet their cost of living, and at the end of the day, their material well-being. You name the constitution of any country in the world, the ones that don't have a constitution, namely Great Britain, <laughs> namely Israel. Uh, but you'll find the governing rules of answering the question of why does this particular country's government exist? And the answer is uh, uh, whatever language they use for. Uh, one is the government's responsibility to address the legitimate domestic safety needs of their citizens. Without that, uh, you have to pack heat. Uh, you're jittery, you're afraid, you, you cannot sleep well. Uh, neither you nor your children nor your, your elders. Secondly, uh, is the question of responsibility for external defense. Uh, because sometimes uh, countries have things that their neighbors want. Uh, but uh, cannot gather them legally, but perhaps by stealth or by hook or by crook, uh, they can acquire them. Uh, Germany used such uh, rationales, uh, Lebensraum, uh, living space, uh, in uh, the late 1930s. Uh, Iraq uh, never uh, recognized uh, Kuwait's right to exist in the independent sovereign politically independent uh, territorial entire comity of nations, except uh, uh, were to become the 19th province of Kuwait. Uh, there have been occasions where Iran has not recognized the sovereignty of Bahrain. Uh, and there uh, exist ongoingly the United Arab Emirates being an occupation of, uh, I mean, the Iran, Islamic Republic of Iran being an occupation of three uh, uh, emir, uh, occupations of two United Arab Emirates, Emirates. Uh, one, two from Russell came, one inhabited, the other not, and a larger one of the three uh, Abu Musa Island, uh, quite a bit inhabited, uh, uh, owned by Sharjah. Uh, so uh, we know that this is a, an area of uh, realities where uh, one country seeks uh, another country's resources, or to dominate it, or take revenge, or predominate it, or intimidate it, or invade it, uh, conquer it, smother it, force it to surrender, whatever. So the second uh, aspect of all countries' leaders' responsibilities is to ensure their external defense, okay? And the third is to do what a country can to help to prolong a country's material well-being. 
not every country can do that. Perhaps most cannot. Among the developing countries, they're hard-pressed because of the dearth of resources or uh, paltry resources or uh, dearth of effective leadership, husbandship, and uh, being able to marshal effective skills and administration achievements to protect those resources. But uh, the bottom line is to not go backwards, not to reverse what those uh, have at the moment or those uh, before you achieved. And the fourth one, is however you describe it, the administration of an ongoing system of uh, a civil justice, as opposed to armed militants and posses and gangs and militias, these four. And uh, in this country's um, reality, in this building and elsewhere, just look, every four years, the first uh, four offices filled are the uh, Bureau, uh, Department of Justice, uh, the uh, uh, Department of Treasury, and Department of Defense, and Department of Foreign Affairs. Every four years, that's it. Then the other ones come after that. So that's the case with all uh, eight of the uh, Gulf countries. Six of them belong to the Gulf Cooperation Council, Bahrain, uh, Kuwait, uh, Oman, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab uh, Emirates. Seven of the eight are Arab, one is not, that's Iran. Uh, six of the eight belong to what, uh, I'm speaking from a biased perspective, uh, the, the modern uh, Arab history's foremost sub-regional organization. Uh, no sub-regional organization comes close. And I'll argue that no sub-regional uh, organization among the world's 130 so-called developing countries, uh, some would call them the non-aligned nations, or uh, some would call them the emerging economies. Uh, none amongst those 130 come close to these six. I'll go further. N no six contiguous neighboring countries on earth in the lifetime of any of us here have been able to thrive and survive uh, despite death being on their doorstep. Not once, not twice, but a minimum of, of three times. Search any other part of the planet and you will not find another region uh, that has had the United States and its allies mobilize and deploy more forces uh, to this particular region. Uh, uh, 55,000 to end the Iran-Iraq war under Operation Ernest Will that uh, people like Lincoln Bloomfield and others were associated with in that service in the United States executive branch. And then uh, the uh, Kuwait crisis of 1991, and uh, of course Americans uh, parochially call it as a shield, as it's on, but Arabs don't call it that. It's the Azmat Kuwait of uh, Tussain, well, Wata Tussain, uh, the Kuwait crisis of 1991, uh, the sh uh, shortest in length of the three. And then the American-led illegal invasion with such disastrous disastrous consequences of March 19, 2003, for which the consequences uh, are more than disastrous, uh, inhumane in the extreme. Uh, Two million immediate external ref refugees, 1.3 million to Syria, not one of them with a visa, by the way. Family is family, blood is blood, kin is kin. Whereas three years after what America did to Iraq, the number of Iraqis allowed into the United States, 28,000. 
versus 1.3 million immediately let in by Syria, 400,000 being let in by Jordan. And imagine what this did to the logistical infrastructure strain facilities and assets of those two countries, not to mention inflation uh, in terms of cost of living as well as rents and the like and competitions for what were already scarce employment opportunities to begin with. Uh, Americans in particular came preferring to, well, the first Gulf War, and 99% are referring to the Kuwait crisis. It was not a Gulf War, okay? It had to do with Kuwait. Uh, the Iran-Iraq War had to do uh, uh, rightly with the Gulf War because it involved a tanker war uh, that affected uh, the entire commerce of all eight countries in the Gulf. And the 2003 one, likewise, could be called a Gulf War uh, because of the threat and the fear that the chaos unleashed in Iraq might spread to the GCC countries. Uh, so we have to get it straight, and 99% of Americans don't have it straight. And if we don't have it straight, how can we lead? How can we make responsible decisions? How can we be uh, worthy parents around the table trying to instruct our children uh, of the realities, the potentials, the shortcomings, the limitations of all of us human beings who at the end of the day are, are, are equally frail on, on the moral front. Now this particular organization has been faulted for its shortcomings, its limitations, its weaknesses, and its failures, and the founders of the GCC would be the first to acknowledge uh, their shortcomings, limitations, and failures. They would be the first to uh, admit that, no, we have not lived up uh, to the dreams, to the aspirations, to the potential that all of us thought when we founded this organization we would be able to achieve. No, we have not satisfied the dreams and the aspirations of our citizens and beyond our citizens, the inhabitants of our country. And some would be lighthearted and maybe flippant as one foreign minister and one briefing uh, attended when somebody uh, faulted that foreign minister for uh, the limited success of the GCC countries up to that point. He said, yes, uh, guilty as charged, but remember, we're from the east and, uh, and uh, we are slow. Uh, that is our way. Um, as opposed to the stereotypical image of the West that time is of the essence and get on it, get on it with it as such. But what has the uh, GCC achieved uh, in its member countries despite the negative press? I would submit the following, uh, that it has made a defining difference in three uh, world wars, regional wars with worldwide uh, consequences and implications. And the first was the Iran-Iraq War, where they helped to bring to an end that one of the longest of the 20th century wars, Resolution 598 of July the 15th, 1987, was passed by 15 out of 15 members of the United Nations Security Council. Not since the Korean War had there been 15 out of 15 uh, voting together on a, a resolution pertaining to war and peace. We know that Iraq accepted it within 24 hours. Ayatollah Khomeini took 13 months uh, to accept it. And when he did, he said, I would rather have drank poison uh, than accept this resolution. 99.9% uh, of Americans uh, start their conversations or introduce their textbooks or written articles when Iraq invaded Iran. Yes, it did. 
but after 19 months of provocation, after 19 months of 111 violations by Iran of the March 6, 1975 Algiers Accord between Iran and Iraq. What am I talking about? Article 6 of Resolution 598 has to do with compensation. Who started this war? in order to assess who pays the other for the damages incurred. Uh, the uh, Iraqis went to the trial in Geneva, so did the Iranians. Rais al-Qaisi was the Iraqi representative. He was my minder on the five times I took members of Congress and attorney generals and lieutenant governors to Iraq during that war. And uh, he told me before he passed away that John Duke, uh, we came uh, prepared. Uh, we had our 111 cases documented. They're all in the United Nations Secretariat. The Iraqis came and realized they had not one case against us, not one violation by Iraq against the Algiers Accord, but 111 violations by Iran against the Algiers Accord over a period of 19 months. The Iraqis showed up at the trial, realized they had no case, they went back to the hotel, packed up their bags, went back to Tehran, and they've never come back. How many Americans know what I just said, okay? In the second one, 40, 34 nations cobbled together uh, in an American concerted action led by George H.W. Bush uh, to do what, if you're uh, pro-results, uh, one could say without exaggeration, an American president did most of the right things in most of the right ways, in most of the right time, for most of the right reasons, with most of the right people, for guess what, most of the right results. What results? The restoration of the three things that all countries have to be able to demonstrate to be a member of the United Nations of good standing neighbor, namely to prove they have that national sovereignty, their political independence, and their territorial integrity. All three of these were trampled underfoot to smithereens by uh, the Iraqi and armed forces. And the GCC countries, Oman, the Emirates, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and Kuwait, uh, working together with the United States, European countries, and also Syria and Egypt, by the way. I was on the first plane into Kuwait after liberation. There were the Syrian uh, troops. There were the Egyptian troops, uh, side by side, shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm with the American troops. How often did that get into the media? And the third one, um, which Kofi Annan said, and I'm speaking from a personal perspective, called illegal, namely the US-led invasion of Iraq, March 19, 2003, there, in which, uh, uh, Kofi Annan said this was illegal. Uh, Iraq had not uh, attacked the United States. Iraq represented no imminent threat to American uh, interests or, or nationals, let alone the United States. And the Iraqi people did not deserve the disaster uh, visited upon them. Two million immediate ref uh, refugees, another two million domestically displaced people out of Iraq's population of 24 million. That's one-sixth of its population in American terms, with America having 335 million people. That would mean as though the United States was invaded and, and 55 million Americans uh, were shattered, thrown out of their homes. 
Uh, this puts it in context, if nothing else does, and we're still paying for that. We had a Deputy Secretary of Defense not far from this building saying, oh, this wouldn't cost us more than $50 billion. And all of that would be paid for by rocks, oil, and gas revenues. Well, we already passed a trillion dollars. By some people's accounts, it's pushing $3 trillion. And this expense will last for at least six more decades. So this is the region in which this six-state union has survived and thrived. Despite death on its doorstep and destruction, uh, it's been amidst potential like no other six developing emerging economies and countries uh, on earth. Uh, if that's not remarkable, it's hard to imagine what is. Uh, we have the distinction uh, of uh, a guest here at this gathering of the Ambassador of Oman, the Honorable Hunaina El-Mugheri, and we have the representative of the Office of the Defense Attaché of Saudi Arabia, who's present, and we have a number of specialists and foreign affairs practitioners from the intelligence, defense, foreign affairs, and commercial uh, communities, as well as the uh, legislative branch now. Uh, specialists here will go in the order uh, of the following. Uh, first, uh, uh, Colonel David DeRoche, then Kirsten uh, Fontenrose, then Philip Cornell, uh, and then Norman Rule, and then um, uh, Boss uh, DeHook. It's appropriate that the first and the last be people of the uniformed background, although Abbas Dahouk, uh, colonel, full colonel, has recently retired, and he was uh, yesterday elected unanimously a member of the board of directors of the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations since he's retired uh, to the private sector. We couldn't be more pleased. <laughs> Now, th those two gentlemen are wearing civilian clothes, which is appropriate because that means they don't have to limp. In other words, their medals are usually on one side of their body, and they tilt uh, as a result. And that's especially the case in both uh, Colonel Atahouk and uh, Colonel uh, DeRoche's perspective. But we'll start with Colonel uh, DeRoche and then follow with Kirsten Fontenrose. And uh, we're pleased in saying in a first-person usness context that... Uh, if you stay at a, a project and a cause long enough and you, you know it's the right cause, you be, can begin to see results that warm your heart. And this is the case of uh, Kirsten Fontenrose. We took her when she was a student uh, to uh, Jordan and Syria when she was at the College of Women Mary. And uh, she was with us for nearly two years. She went with us as a co-escort delegation to Saudi Arabia. And then from there, she worked in the office of the Near East of the Department of uh, Defense, and also most recently in the White House as the Director for Gulf Affairs in the National Security uh, Council. But she, she started with us, and we're proud as can be of that. Philip Cornell, it's, I've not had the privilege and pleasure of meeting him and working with him thus far, but uh, what more talented and experienced and educated a person empirically on the ground could one ask for in terms of his experience with the International Energy Agency? Those of us young enough, old enough to remember the last Arab oil embargo in October of 19, 
1973, realized that the ensuing panic in the United States and uh, Western Europe and elsewhere uh, resulted in there being established a permanent international institution in Paris uh, that would work uh, every day uh, on the possibility that that could be another major disruption to this finite hydrocarbon fuel that fuels the economies of the world. Um, he has been a senior advisor uh, to the director of the International Energy Agency, as well as to NATO and countries belonging to the European Union uh, that have long been vastly more dependent upon this resource in the last 30 years than has the United States and the American people. And then following uh, Philip Cornell, we have uh, uh, Norman Rule, who um, uh, is, is uh, uh, no exception to the rule of a, a, a person who's been adequately prepared and trained and experienced and educated, uh, having uh, been in the CIA for more than three decades and served in that capacity as a manager of a division of uh, and people in the spooky place. Uh, that gather these uh, spooky things uh, upon which we're dependent for assessments and our estimates and our analyses pertaining uh, to policy and we're grateful for his public service and his particular focus has been with respect to Iran. Um, and uh, last week uh, we have uh, Colonel Abbas uh, Dahouk and you won't believe his resume either. Uh, born and raised in Lebanon uh, trained in the Soviet Union, uh, trained in the Sultanate of Oman's uh, Institute of uh, Diplomatic Studies and Oman's uh, Command and General Staff College, as, as well as serving as uh, in the Defense Attaché's office in Abu Dhabi, United Arab Emirates. This is when, uh, right after we, we met and escorted a group of West Point cadets to the UAE and then serving as defense attaché in the office of the defense attaché at the Embassy of the United States in regard. And in that position, for those who are not aware, you wear two hats, one uh, to the Defense Intelligence Agency and the other to the U.S. Central Command. And so he bore those responsibilities for reporting accurately uh, the reality as he saw it. We have an all-star cast here. I've asked each of them to try to confine their remarks to eight minutes each. They will open it for to, uh, questions from the floor. And uh, please fill out uh, th three by five cards that I think you have. If you don't have three by five cards, try four by six cards. If you don't have them, we don't have eight by ten cards, but uh, write it down on a piece of paper. Uh, we'll start with uh, uh, David DeRoche. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Anthony. Uh, appreciate it. If we can get this going here. Uh, let me start off by saying that um, uh, I don't refer to myself as a colonel unless I'm dealing with a lieutenant colonel who's giving me attitude, <laughs> or if I'm at KFC because I kind of hope they think I'm a friend of Colonel Sanders, I get an extra wing or two thrown in. I also have to apologize for the fellow panelists. This, this panel was supposed to be televised, but when I wore this suit today, they said, no, if, if we televise it, it'll strobe and people will have epileptic seizures watching it. <laughs> so um, I apologize for that. I have to start off, as always, by um, uh, saying that my remarks do not reflect any agency of the United States government. And indeed, I haven't spoken to anybody in the US government about this uh, subject. I, I, uh, this is all from open sources. I'm going to talk about the Iranian way of near war 
And I have to admit at the front that I am not the uh, uh, most knowledgeable person on this. I can think of at least four people in the Washington think tank community who I have um, listened to over the years, accumulated their thoughts. I'm going to talk about the specific issue. Those four people are, first off, my colleague at the Near East South Asian Center, Dr. Gaudat Bagat. Secondly, Ali Ofone of the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. Third, Michael Eisenstadt of the Washington Institute of Near East Politics. And then finally, Alex Vitank of the Near East Institute. If you're interested in what they have to say or what I have to say about them, uh, usually on my Twitter I, I post uh, things of interest, so we can go for that. The first thing I want to talk about, if I can get this to work, I can get it to make a noise. Hold on, let's go on and off. <laughs> Strangers in the night. Exchanging glances. Okay, let's try that, yeah. All right. So um, basically, Iran's strategic goals are disruption, not dominance. They, they uh, address the indirect approach to warfare. They have to avoid confrontation because they know they're going to lose uh, if they get into a direct confrontation. So they seek to use the indirect approach. They seek to attack in ways that are not attributable. And I've written a paper on this. That's strobes again. There we go. This, it's available online at the Arab Gulf States Institute of Washington website. If you Google my name and uh, disruption versus dominance, you get a copy of it. It's a very small uh, paper, and uh, like I said, it's more of a distillation than original thinking. Typically, when Iran finds itself boxed in in a situation that's unsustainable, and Iran currently does, in their view, this is the culmination of 30 years of open warfare with the United States, or open or barely suppressed warfare, they respond in one of three actions. The first is they encourage proxy attacks, and we've seen those with missiles launched against various facilities in Iraq. Um, so these are by various organizations that have a degree of Iranian involvement, a degree of Iranian direction, but that it is obscure so much that it would be very hard for us to persuade skeptical allies or indeed skeptical members of the American public that they're responsible. The second way is they disrupt shipping through the Strait of Hormuz and, and beyond, and they try to do that in a manner that makes it hard, again, to attribute to them and say, oh my gosh, well, what a coincidence. The only time we find mines in the Gulf is when uh, Iran is under increased sanctions. Uh, but again, it's difficult to attribute. And then the final way they do it is they take hostages. And if you go to any human rights organization, there's a long list of people, American citizens, Western citizens, dual nationals, and of course Iranian political prisoners who are held hostage. And indeed, we've had periodic hostage exchanges uh, with Iran going all the way back. It wasn't very well reported, but at the time of the JCPOA, there was an exchange of hostages. And one of the hostages we gave up was the IRGC recruited member who tried to blow up Cafe Milano uh, here in Washington to kill uh, Adel al-Jaber, which, um, you know, it's just not acceptable behavior. Um, there are plenty of other overpriced, mediocre Italian restaurants that could be attacked. <laughs> so where does the proxy warfare come from? Well, famously, Henry Kissinger said Iran needs to decide if it is a revolution or a state. And what Iran has done, and this mirrors Vladimir Putin's uh, claim to the mantleship, that if there is a Shia population of any significance, regardless of whether they're sevens or twelvers or fivers, that Iran has not just the right 
but the obligation to intervene on their behalf. Just as Putin has intervened on behalf of Russian national populations in Crimea, Donbass, two provinces of Georgia, Moldova, and threatened to do so in Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, uh, so Iran has exercised a degree of intervention here, a degree of control, and has helped set up uh, other organizations. Now, I was a student of the late uh, Augustus Norton, who just died three months ago, and, and that's a loss for the scholarly community. And, you know, it's not like Hezbollah just sprang as a result of a direction from Iran. I recognize that. I recognize that there's a social role that we, particularly in the United States, we focus on the security aspects and we ignore things like, you know, the Ikhwana Muslim in, uh, in Egypt was like the the only group that effectively responded to the earthquakes in Cairo uh, a few, you know, a couple decades ago. Same thing, you know, Hezbollah also has a social role. It provides social services that the Lebanese state's unable to do. But the fact remains, a lot of the armament, the direction, the command and control, uh, moving them into action as trained formations in Syria, that is done under Iranian um, direction and in all of these countries that have a significant Shia population, Iran has an interest and to some degrees a presence. The second disruptive way they do, so that's proxies. The second thing they do is they arm their proxies and they arm them with missiles. Now the two missiles that are of most concern here are the Qiyam, the yellow one. That's the missile that was fired at uh, Tehran International Airport uh, in November of 2017. Um, that I, I, it landed pretty much just as I was landing as well. It was a very eventful weekend. I, I, um, I was driving from the airport and all of a sudden I saw all these sirens driving towards the airport. I said, hmm, I wonder what happened there. Then I went to stay with my friends who had made reservations at the Ritz-Carlton for the Marine Corps ball that weekend. They had a phone call from the Ritz-Carlton saying, I'm sorry, your reservations are canceled. Um, the Crown Prince has decided that the hotel is going to be filled with other people than you. Um, and that was, of course, the crackdown and the incarceration of various people in Ritz-Carlton. That is unusual, they're rumbling. Uh, the second most significant missile, or the FATA-110, um, primarily, these are, these, the FATA-110 is a variant of the Scud. Um, it's locally produced in Iran. It's uh, a knockoff, it's prolific, it's, it's dissimilated. I think that there, are, there is evidence that it may have been transferred uh, to various Iraqi militias, uh, and I know that there have been uh, various uh, um, Israeli interventions against weapons convoys in Syria, supposedly going to Hezbollah, and uh, some people have speculated this might be it, but the Fatah 110 is the one that they seem to be producing in large numbers that might be used if there were to be some sort of a, an exchange of fire across the Gulf. Speaking of the Gulf, let's look at the Strait of Hormuz. I show this uh, slide to make two points. The first one is we all know that it's a choke point, but uh, what a lot of us don't know, except of course from Madam Ambassador, is that the southern point, whoop, I'm on the wrong slide, geez. I went the wrong way, I'm sorry. High tech one, ranger nothing. Okay, so uh, one thing we know is that the um, bottom end of the strait is controlled by Oman. Uh, and even though it's, uh, dis, dis, it's separated from Oman territory, it's not contiguous, in the same manner that uh, the United States uh, is denied a land bridge to Alaska by the perfidious Canadians, led mostly by my relatives. Um, the second point is that the um, shipping lanes themselves are much narrower than the geographical features would, would indicate. The shipping lanes are akin to a canal, and the importance of the shipping lanes is that the Gulf itself is relatively deep for such a busy, or relatively shallow for such a busy international waterway, and so um, 
the shipping is forced to concentrate. Indeed, if you were to fly over the Gulf, you would see ships lining up uh, waiting for passage in a similar manner that you would see if you were at Suez, uh, Port Said, or uh, the Bosporus. And so this is a target-rich environment if one wants to conduct attacks against civilian shipping. This slide I got from the U.S. Navy. This shows the... Um, oops, sorry. Gosh darn it, I keep going the wrong way. I'm sorry. I'll get this right by the end of it. So this is the storyboard that shows the sequencing of the attack on the two ships. So let me make a couple points about these ships. It's already been said once today that the ships are oil tankers. They are capable of being oil tankers. They were not carrying oil those days. They were carrying petrochemicals. One was carrying methanol, one was carrying naphtha. Why is this significant? A few days before the attacks on the ships, new sanctions were enacted against Iran restricting the export of petrochemicals. So the target was selected for um, uh, significant uh, purposes of significance to send a message. The second point I want to make about this is that um, the nationality of the ships is of interest. As was noted, the, of the four ships attacked at Fujairah, two were Saudi, one was Emirati, one was Norwegian. The two ships attacked on the base on, on the uh, Gulf with the limpet mines, one was Japanese, one was Norwegian. What is significant about Norway? Okay. Well, aside from the fact that it's one of the few countries our president seems to hold in high regard and not describe with the epithet not suitable for use in mixed company, um, Nor <laughs> Norway is uh, the largest company, country in Europe that is not a member of the European Union. And of course, the Iranians are calculating on the European Union as being the counterweight to the United States and to set up, they're, they're saying the European Union has to give us concessions, has to enable the financial benefits of the JCPOA, keep it slowing for us, set up a separate banking system so that we can conduct trade through a European Union-enabled thing separate from the American financial system. So they're seeking to send a message to the Europeans, but without damaging the European Union. Uh, I carry on here with the... Um, storyboard of the ships. You can get this anywhere from the U.S. Navy or I, I'm happy if the National Council wants to release it. But I want to make the point here that the um, Iranians seem to take no effort to disguise their moves here. Um, this is not designed to be a lethal attack. If you want to sink a ship, you put a hole in it below the waterline, not above the waterline. The, um, uh, the mines were emplaced above the waterline. They were placed amidship. Most of the crew on a ship is towards the stern. Um, so their um, target was selected to send a message against petrochemicals, which had just been sanctioned. It was done in a way that we were able to track the boat coming out from a naval base. We were able to track the boat going in to retrieve one of the mines that didn't go off. And it was done at a high level above the waterline in order to send a message, but not to kill somebody, not to force people into war. And this is in keeping with Iranian strategic culture, which is to confront, but not do it in such a way that it provokes an overwhelming response. You want to live in your enemy's ambiguous zone, in your, not enemies, adversaries' ambiguous zone, where they are irritated where they take note, but they're not so provoked that they have to take a reaction, a punitive reaction. And indeed, that seems to have worked so well here. Another picture. Whoops, I can't, sorry. I have 12 slides, and I will get this right by the 11th slide. Um, okay, so this is the limpet mine, or a limpet mine, I think, of the type. The only difference is that this one requires bolting on it. The one that was used had magnets. Um, this picture I took from an Iranian newspaper it was displayed at a... Um, 
uh, naval fair in Shiraz a few years ago. And um, what you have is the mine is shaped like a cone because the explosives are arranged in the cone and then you typically have a penetrator, usually it's a copper plate, and it explodes in, produces a hot jet, blows inward, penetrates the metal on it, and that holds it. But again, if you want to sink the ship, you do that below the water line so that it takes on water. <laughs> Um, this is the uh, MV Kokura, and again, this was released by the Navy, the, H, uh, the USS Bainbridge. And what you can see is that there was one hole that penetrated, again, above the waterline, and then one mine that was observed there as well. Um, an Iranian ship, if you go back to the um, a storyboard that I showed you, when the Bainbridge tried to approach this in order to do this, an Iranian ship interposed itself between it. So we kept our distance, the US Navy kept its distance and filmed it, but it was not able to intervene because they felt that would be a little bit too provocative. Uh, this is the uh, men of the Iranian patrol boat Gashti uh, removing the mine that was unexploded in order to get rid of some of the evidence. And they were able to, you can see the outline of the mine itself and you can see the outline of some of the um, uh, magnets, uh, but one of them was left um, and they were unable to <coughs> retrieve that. And there's also holes that indicate that uh, some of these may have been drilled in in order to adhere to it properly. So um, this, this uh, magnet is uh, being displayed, I think, publicly. The second incident to happen was the downing of the Global Hawk drone. And as Pat said, this is a very large, very expensive, considered to be a strategic asset flies at a very high level, um, but quite frankly, the US military has gotten lazy in recent years because we're used to operating in places like Iraq and Afghanistan where we have uncontested control of the airspace and uncontested control of the electromagnetic spectrum, particularly when you get above like about 12,000 feet, the uh, altitude at which people could shoot effectively you know, with a, a man pad or, or uh, a machine gun which is not 12,000 feet, far below that. So this is an expensive weapon system, and uh, its loss is something to make one take notice. Now, the Iranians have claimed that it was in uh, their territorial waters, and this shows um, uh, the uh, black line is the Iranian territorial waters. The um, red line uh, show the international shipping lanes. The yellow line shows um, the path that it took according to the United States, and then you can see the point where it was shot down. This was conducted by a f person on social media who kind of crowdsourced it, and basically what he did was he took a geolocating feature with a map, and the yellow pin shows where an animation uh, produced by the Iranian mission of the UN showed it was down, which is international waters. The blue line shows the DOD claim, which is also international waters, and then the red pin uh, is the handwritten map that Javed Zarif um, showed uh, to show where it came down. And I have pointed out that within the foreign affairs community in the United States, more people have a higher opinion of Javed Zarif than they have of Brian Hook and John Bolton. So um, the Iranians uh, harness um, information warfare to their case here, and they do take advantage, they read our newspapers, and they do take advantage of uh, information warfare because they realize that they're not trying to do this. Finally, I have the wreckage that was displayed by the Revolutionary Guard of the Global Hawk, if anybody interested. Now the question is, what are we gonna do about it? Well, President Trump, uncharacteristically for him, de-escalated, and it's worth noticing that there has not been a proxy attack of any missiles in Iraq. There has not been any Hezbollah action. There has not been um, large-scale Houthi um, UAV attacks, such as we saw against the civilian airport and desalination plant, both of which were specifically targeted as known civilian targets, which is a violation of the law of warfare. 
All that has ceased. Um, if there is to be a retaliatory strike, I think that the model will be such as what we saw in the Kosovo War, where we try to isolate specific bad actors within it. In the Kosovo War, our initial airstrikes were not against the Yugoslavian army, they were against the Ministry of the Interior, which was the organization most involved in human rights violations. So on this chart, the blue is the Iranian Navy that belongs to the Ministry of Defense. The red is the Revolutionary Guard <coughs> naval bases. And I think that uh, a likely scenario, if there's another attack, uh, say, against shipping or something like that, would be a limited target against one of the Revolutionary Guard uh, naval bases if we can determine that the, target, that the targeting was associated with that, the boat moved out from there, something like that. And I think that concurrent with an attack, there would probably be messages sent probably through third nations, such as a party that maintains friendly relations with both Iran and the United States, and I think it's not too hard for people in the room to guess which one of the best countries to do that would be, based on track records, saying, look, we are not going to attack the Navy. This is a limited strike of limited duration, and that is in keeping with past practices, and in keeping with the overall tenets of Iranian strategic culture, as Michael Eisenstadt has written on, we can expect that there would be a stand down from Iran. The good news is, when President Trump declined to take action to the shootdown of the Global Hawk, that appears to be the de-escalatory measure. Unfortunately, those of us who are used to watching the president and criticizing the president, it's just not in our muscle memory to recognize that he is capable of taking the pressure down on a situation and actually acting in a manner that uh, the bien pensant would regard as statesmanlike. Uh, but the fact remains that there hasn't been any action since this was done. And so it appears that there's a de-escalatory thing. And then finally, this is my contact information again, and I welcome your questions. Thank you, sir. Thanks. I'm going to begin by just addressing the, the big question in the room, and we can probably all say it together. Are we staging to go to war with Iran? And I would say as someone who worked until fairly recently for John Bolton as his senior director for the Gulf, no. Um, if we want to get into the inside baseball in the administration about why I think that, we can do that during Q&A. The second question, will he sit down to talk? I would say yes. And really, when you take a look at Pompeo's 12 points, they really boil down to two. One of which is, we'd like Iran to stop pursuing military nuclearization, and we'd like them to stop arming and equipping violent proxy actors that are destabilizing other sovereign nations. All 12 really boil down to those two. So are those things you can come to a table and talk about? Absolutely. Will the president come to the table and talk about these with preconditions met? He won't require them. We can look at North Korea for, uh, for a, an example of that. But what I would also say is that we wouldn't expect him to come to the table and give in. He's going to come to the table and stand by those two, well, the 12 points, if there is a discussion at all. The real point here is make it clear that the U.S. is open to talking. If Iran chooses not to, that is on Iran. But it cannot be said that the U.S. is unwilling to discuss these points or negotiate uh, on these points. Why does the U.S. care so much about proxy activities? I used to get asked this all the time by our um, Western counterparts in Europe. You know, they understand the, the concern about nuclearization, but when it comes to proxies, why is that so important to us? And I would say from a purely U.S.-centric position, 
purely US-centric. It boils down to about five things. One, the proxy activities prevent political stability and economic growth in countries that need it. And this means that creates international pressure for the US to come in and fill those gaps, which creates an economic drain on the US to provide medium to long-term assistance to these countries. Second, it creates refuge, refugee flows that tax our allies and partners and distract them from addressing internal problems like terrorism and economic fragility, which then again requires the US to come in and fill those gaps in ways that drain our resources. And by resources, I'm talking manpower, as well as funding, as well as bandwidth within the government. Three, it creates messy asymmetric wars with little to no chance of political solutions. Four, it teaches following generations that pursuing their political grievance solutions through violent activity is an internationally normalized mechanism for, for addressing grievances, which I don't think anyone in the international community agrees with, but it does create that precedent. And five, it sets up a zero to hero model that can inspire other similar actors. So if any one of these, if any one of these violent organizations succeeds in creating for themselves a dominant role in a political environment where they are a drastic minority, then this looks like something that will embolden other similar groups around the world. And what we're not looking for is for the global map to be dotted with hot little fires of instability everywhere in the world. And again, from a US-centric perspective, that kind of map would mean our resources are greatly drained, and it also reduces potential markets for, for the US writ large. So there are lots of reasons why we really care about the proxy activity, and it doesn't only boil down to the nuclear issue. The way we see the Iran strategy now, we being myself and other former administration folks who, um, who just talk about this stuff like nerds all the time, kind of like all of us do, uh, is that Iran is pursuing, I mean, this is sort of a simplification of what Dave really eloquently uh, described. Do a one-hit strike, sit back, and watch how the international community reacts. Monitor this. When you're not blamed, you strike again. It's a little bit of death by a thousand cuts. When I explained this to my mother, I said, here's what it is. When we're driving to my grandmother's house and my brother and I are in the back seat, and my brother reaches over, my brother's Iran, and he pinches me. And I yell, and my mother turns around. I say, he, he pinched me. She's like, I didn't see it. So why don't you two get along? And she turns around. And then my brother reaches over and pinches me again. This time I yell and I pinch him back and my mother turns around and she sees me pinch him. And she says, you're the bad actor, America. You start behaving. And I say, but, but, but he started it. Well, I didn't, I didn't see that. So you don't get any cookies. And you know, that, what, we're, what we'd like our mother to say is, one, I recognize that it was started by this other actor, by your brother, Iran. And two, Iran, you're older you need to set the better, better example for young America. Hmm? Might be asking a little much, but it's kind of fun. So no one in the administration is looking for a war. Pompeo's not looking for a war. The new acting Secretary of Defense, I can't speak for him, but I can say that based on how DOD currently slow rolls a lot of NSC taskings related to Iran, we can extrapolate that DOD writ large is not in favor of a war. We know that John Bolton is not in favor of a war. Why? Everyone points to his former, you know, his prior to administration writings that are, that are quite hawkish. But if you look at the strategy, it really is a maximum economic pressure strategy. And that does include supporting cyber annexes, for instance. Um, it includes disruption of logistics that enable illicit smuggling of oil, that kind of thing. But really the focus 
is on economics. And Bolton right now does think that strategy is working. So when you look at things like leaks of uh, news that the DOD per, you know, provided a plan for putting 120,000 boots on the ground, remember what's happening here. If DOD doesn't want a war, what does that probably mean? Three courses of action are generally provided for any tasking. One is usually status quo-ish. One in this administration from DOD tends to be, we won't do much that's different. We'll do a little bit that's different. Maybe some, some, uh, some non-kinetic other options, which is great. And then the third will be some option that's so ridiculous and outlandish, you know the president will not back it, and you know the American public would be outraged if it were chosen. So this ensures that you don't choose that option. And when something like that leaks, that's what you're looking at. You're looking at the outrageous option that was never really going to be considered. So the one good thing about the mild panic that results when people think there might be an escalation toward war is that it does continually remind the administration that the US public does not support the idea of a war with Iran. Things like leaving a carrier in, in the Gulf or bringing out additional servicemen and women in uniform is normal deterrence activity for, for most countries. I mean, if we panicked, if India and Pakistan went to war every time they saber rattled and put troops on their border, we'd all be housing Kashmiri refugees in our homes, right? I mean, so we need to not panic about that. The majority of the Iranian population, from the way we used to discuss it when I was in the White House, um, we do not feel has any idea of the scope and nature of Iran's proxy activities. The Iranian regime obviously does not discuss this domestically, other than people being aware that Hezbollah is supported as a stalwart opponent to Israel. There is not recognition or knowledge shared of the level of that financial support partially because the Iranian population has a lot of problems economically and they have a lot of unemployment and they have a lot of job shortages. There are a lot of issues domestically that Iran is not addressing because they're choosing to fund this proxy activity. And that's part of the root of this maximum economic strategy. It's to create a, a guns versus butter decision on the part of the regime. So really to simplify it, if I don't make enough, if I don't make very much money, I have to choose between whether I'm going to provide services for my people or I'm going to fund this activity. And we're, we're hoping to force that decision in the favor of providing for the Iranian people. That's why you hear Pompeo really talking up, we're with the people of Iran. That's not just rhetoric. We really do want the regime to choose that road versus choosing to fund these destabilizing activities around the world that make it hard for all of us to, to conduct our business globally. We do think it's working, too. And I say we again, myself and all of my uh, friends at Happy Hour who sit around and talk about what we used to do. And you. <laughs> Same thing. We all talk about this. Um, there is, and, and John Bolton, while I was in, at least I can say for sure, definitely thought this economic maximum pressure campaign was working. And, you know, without getting into all the details, I'm going to put Mark on the spot here, because there's a New York Times article on March 28th the title exactly is Iran's allies feel the pain of American sanctions that said and quoted Hezbollah members saying we're not getting paid anymore. You know, so that's what we're looking for. That's a direct measure of effectiveness of this strategy. If Hezbollah can't get paid, they can't act. And that's exactly what we're looking for, to force that pullback of destabilizing activity. I would say that the one danger we're looking at right now within, within uh, the administration thinking is that there really is kind of a blinder single lens focus on Iran. So when you look at other regional problems that are more complex, maybe longer standing like Yemen, um, we used to kind of look at it uh, from perspective of wither Yemen, you know, stabilization plans, political resolution. 
And now it looks like mostly the focus is on getting IRGC representatives off the battlefield. So, you know, I would say that the interagency has its work cut out for it and kind of expanding that that look that the administration is taking on the rest of the region and not keeping Iran as the only focus because, you know, we take IRGC off the battlefield, we're still left with a lot of challenges in Yemen for just as one example, much less Libya, Syria, Iraq. So um, unless there is advanced planning going on for kind of long-term contingency plans, what do we do next, what comes after this, then we'll be left with the same bucket of problems that, that emerged in the first place. Let, let's hope that more of that will be happening. Um, let, me, let me pose this, because pose this, I'd like to ask Iran some questions. And so for your happy hour conversations, I'd say, if the president were to sit down with Iran, who is the appropriate interlocutor? And Norm probably has an answer, but I don't want him to answer. You know, is it, is it a president who is essentially an expedient face for a regime that fills him in on nothing? The poor guy was in Paris when they planned a bombing on the MEK conference. I mean, he's, he's disposable, as far as that tells us, right? What does he actually know about the real plans and strategies? Or is it a cleric who is not elected, does not represent his people, and is completely out of touch? Who do we sit the president down with? Because we can have all of our action officers sit down with Iran, much like we did with the Kerry talks, but until the president sits down with someone, it's not real. And we all know he could change his mind in that meeting. So who is the appropriate interlocutor, Iran? Who really speaks for you? I would say a second question is, why does Iran choose to be a pariah? If it's to export the revolution, then perhaps this reason will not outlast the, live, you know, the, the lives of the current what we call the Iranian equivalent of the baby boomer generation. You know, maybe, maybe that ends. Unless the IRGC is ensuring the longevity of itself by hand-selecting the replacements for the current regime, which we expect is probably happening. We would if we were them, right? So in that case, we would have to look at this idea of exporting revolution staying alive. And if so, how do you counter that? It's a, it's a big question. But is that what Iran is doing? Or is this purely a tactic to drain the resources of their strategic opponents, US, Gulf nations? And if so, OK. But is it a smart tactic? Is this a really smart strategy? We talk about this strategy of proxy activities, for instance, as if it's cheap. We all say, oh, it's cheap. You know, they only give them a couple hundred thousand a month each, and uh, no Iranian dies. But is it really cheap? Um, what about the opportunity costs for Iran? Not only are they losing what they're losing due to sanctions, right, and due to uh, what they spend on all these, all these individual groups, but the opportunity cost itself. So what does it cost them to be a pariah? What does it cost them to not be eligible for technology transfers? What does it cost them to not be a major trading partner of someone like the United States? What does it cost them to not be an international destination for tourism? What are they losing out on? How expensive is this strategy? And then why is it a good one? You know, what is their calculus? What do they think they gain more from this than they would from being a, a workable, friendly partner, like Oman, to all nations, and sort of joining the pro-social group of countries and benefiting from that? We all talk about Iran, like it has so much to give. Every one of us can't wait for all this to be over so we can visit as a tourist, right? Why do they choose this instead? How is that to their benefit? We could never really come up with a question or uh, an answer on that. So I'm going to end with just a little fun anecdote from a friend of mine, Arthur Houghton, who was just in Iran last week. He was receiving a medal from the foreign minister. And um, I asked him how his trip went, and he was very funny about it. And he mentioned, he said, he said, my favorite thing was probably going to the annual Down with America rally, 
which was, he described as a, a gender-separated cross between a picnic in the park and a St. Patrick's Day parade. And he said he saw lots of you know, grandmothers and grandchildren with these government-provided placards that said, down with America, in the same font and everything, and they're marching around. And they'd meet him, and they'd say, where are you from? And he'd say, uh, I'm from America. And they'd say, oh, nice, good to see you. Welcome to Iran. Down with America. You know, I mean, so I, I think that tells us that there is hope that maybe, maybe this isn't so entrenched uh, I, I like those kinds of anecdotes because I think the people are what, what the real um, center of gravity is. Um, but I'm going to stop there and we'll, we can ask, talk and answer questions. I'd like to hear your opinions on some of those I asked in the Q&A. Thanks. Oh, sorry. Hello. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I'm Phil Cornell uh, at the Atlantic Council Global Energy Center and I'm happy to be here. Um, I want to start off this conversation by, you know, saying that, well, discussing the global energy market and the role of Hormuz, um, that the region and Hormuz in particular really is uh, a huge deal. So we all know uh, some of the big headline numbers. Uh, out of about 100 million barrels per day in the global uh, oil market, about 20 million barrels per day pass through Hormuz. Uh, about 17 uh, of that is crude. Uh, and about three is products. So of the major uh, Arab exporters uh, and OPEC exporters in the area, uh, for a country like Saudi Arabia, that means about six and a half million barrels of seven million uh, exports pass through the strait. Uh, for countries like the UAE, it's about two and a half million barrels. Uh, Iraq, uh, uh, Kuwait, and Qatar, uh, we're talking about almost all of their exports uh, going through the strait. So there's a reason uh, that we talk about this as one of the most principal global choke points uh, in, in the world's energy trade. And it's a reason why we've focused on it so carefully uh, over the past uh, at least 30, 40 years, uh, uh, including uh, you know, maintaining an American military presence uh, to maintain openness of sea lanes in the area, um, but also uh, for other kind of organizations uh, that I've been involved with, uh, starting with uh, NATO, which uh, for a long time has been coordinating uh, patrols of the area, and also the International Energy Agency, uh, which is responsible for maintaining strategic stocks uh, in the event of a disruption. So, uh, and of all those, the oil that's going out, uh, um, it's obviously coming largely from, from Arab producers, uh, and the destination these days uh, is much more to Asia uh, than it has been in the past. So we're talking about 75% thereabouts uh, of, of the oil that goes through the strait is to Asia, and a vastly reduced amount of that oil is actually coming to the U.S., uh, com uh, particularly relative to what it was about 20 years ago. Um, but I want to stress uh, that that doesn't mean that it's not extremely important to U.S. interests or that that kind of uh, breakdown means that there's any less impact uh, on prices for Americans uh, because the oil market is very much a fungible one. Uh, so what happens there, no matter how much of the imports are coming to the U.S., massively affects uh, the American market. So that's why it's very important. And I think the question is really why, if this is such a big deal and if, you know, we've... Uh, we've devoted so much efforts to keeping it open, uh, particularly given the potential price impacts of a disruption uh, some decades ago. Why is the market seem to be so complacent uh, with the risks surrounding Hormuz this time? Now, what we hear in the media usually is that we have two competing stories, right? One is a supply story uh, where there's some constriction, obviously, based on what's been going on in Iran and risks around uh, in, in the region. And one is the, uh, the, demand, sorry, the supply story, and then one is the demand story, uh, which points to a lot more uh, softening of demand, particularly on the back of 
reduced uh, uh, global growth uh, and, and, and decelerating uh, demand growth out of China, uh, particularly in the context of the uh, trade war that's currently happening. Um, but I would say there's also another supply story. Uh, so there's two supply stories, and, one, and that is very much what's happening inside the U.S. Uh, with U.S. shale. Uh, so on the demand side, we're going to you know, see what's the outcome of the meeting between President Trump, Trump and President Xi uh, tomorrow. And the likelihood of, uh, of, if they come out of that meeting, seeing that there's going to be some kind of uh, reduction of tensions around the trade war could really uh, send prices, uh, start going north, uh, because of uh, an analyst focus on what's on the demand story. And of course, on the supply story, uh, we have that tension uh, particularly coming from not only uh, a reduction of almost two and a half million barrels of Iranian oil that have been taken off the market since last year, uh, given that we've gone from about two and a half exports to really, frankly, about zero now. Um, you know, some numbers coming out of Iran in June are less than 200,000 barrels per day, um, and that's of loadings. But actually, when we see those ships, uh, uh, very little of it is unloading. So a lot of them are staying loaded uh, inside the Gulf, some off the coast of China, and maybe a little bit of oil getting into Syria. But for all intents and purposes, um, we're talking about a reduction to about zero. Um, on the other side, we have a reduction uh, uh, from the traditional producers and from OPEC in the context of the OPEC plus uh, cuts that uh, have, have, have reduced quotas by about a million and a half barrels per day um, uh, and have been going on for about two and a half years. That's another meeting that's going to be coming up this weekend, uh, particularly on, on Sunday and Monday, uh, when the OPEC producers are going to decide with partners and principally Russia uh, whether to extend those cuts. Um, one of the major drivers uh, of that partnership has been Saudi Arabia. Uh, from the beginning. Uh, Russia has been a little bit less enthusiastic, although it looks like they're going to be going along with the cuts for an extension again this uh, weekend. Um, but Saudi Arabia really has, you know, after they abandoned their price strategy uh, after about 2014 to 16 of allowing production to go up and prices to go down, um, came back to market management uh, with OPEC and OPEC+. Plus. Um, and why is that? Because they've changed a development strategy in the context of Vision 2030, uh, where they're trying to really front-end a lot of the value, uh, not only from uh, their oil exports, but also in terms of tapping capital markets uh, uh, in order to raise capital and fund a lot of the uh, new programs that are happening. So, so Saudi Arabia and OPEC continue to, to cut production. Um, but at the same time, it's in the context of, obviously, vastly surging uh, American shale oil. Uh, and to the degree that last year, America put on more production uh, in one year than any country in any year in history. Uh, and the amount of oil um, that, so, and, it, and, it, and it accounted for almost 100% of the global demand growth was covered by American supply growth. So as we're taking off millions of barrels uh, of Iranian crude, uh, there's also a, a big surge of American production uh, that's largely making up for it. Uh, and going forward, uh, over the next three or four years, we can expect that American production will continue to rise by a million to even two million barrels, um, as it did last year, um, even if that growth is a little bit constrained by changing dynamics uh, among some of the mid-cap and small, uh, smaller shale producers and consolidation under some of the larger ones, um, that growth is going to continue to be strong. So I think what a lot of the oil market is looking at is both the short-term reality of, of demand, uh, but also the longer-term supply uh, realities of U.S. shale. Um, 
How this plays out over the next uh, several months is going to obviously de uh, depend very much on what the end game is uh, of the ongoing tensions that are going on uh, in a, in, uh, with Iran. So on one side, uh, we can imagine something that stays uh, relatively the same, which are these sort of constant low-level uh, pinprick attacks on shipping going through the Gulf. Um, and in that case, I think that we're going to see uh, even if there's sort of a price reaction, which again, until now has been relatively muted, so in May we only saw about 1% to 2% uh, uh, increase based on the attacks around Fujairah, and then the more recent attacks uh, in the Gulf of Oman, maybe slightly more, about 3-4%. Um, but in, in, an, in a situation where for a lot of reasons we see more tightness in the market, um, which could happen you know, down the road, those price responses could become uh, much higher. Because even if inside you know, the American uh, economy that we see sort of stocks uh, staying relatively healthy because of increasing production from the US, in the region, there really is tightness in the market. Partly that's down to different in differences in crude qualities. So the oil that we've taken off uh, from Iran and uh, from uh, Venezuela, by the way, tends to be of a heavier, sour, uh, uh, profile, um, and that's really not one that can be made up for by a lot of the shale oil that's much lighter. Um, but indeed, it can be made up by uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, who is maintaining this, this quota, um, and not only the quota, but only also about 600 KBD, or th 600,000 barrels per, per day under the quota. Um, so if things stay the same, uh, we're likely to see you know, some kind of effects on price, but the actual flow of oil going through the strait um, is going to re remain about the same. Why is that? Well, because we can see that you know, shipping insurance rates and costs might increase. Um, and indeed, we've seen that happen uh, already. Um, but even on the high end, we're talking about an extra cost of about you know, three to $500,000 per, per transit, um, which sounds like a, lot, like a lot of money. But for a VLCC or a crude carrier uh, that's carrying one to two million barrels per day, we're talking about much less than uh, a dollar per barrel increase in the cost of transiting. Um, I think what's much more of the risks to transit um, happen when uh, actual shippers refuse to ship because of safety to the crew. Um, and that is a possibility, and we've seen a response from uh, international shippers uh, in that regard. But so far, out of about you know, thousands, maybe 2,000 different shipping companies that go through the strait, only two of them um, have actually ceased to ship. Um, and obviously, you know, there's shippers and then there's shippers. So even if there's 2,000 sh uh, shipping companies that are transiting, only probably about 40 of them are major and, and uh, account for a lot of the traffic. And even among them, there's a risk profile which varies between those who are probably going to stop shipping in the event of, of higher risk and those that are going to continue anyway. But the experience that we've seen, um, not only from the, the tanker war in the 80s, but also since, um, is that you know, at the right price and uh, given the right kind of, uh, uh, you know, as long as the risks are paid for, uh, which means also, for example, danger pay to crews, uh, you will usually find somebody who's willing to ship the oil uh, out of the region. So the risk of, of, of actually refusing to ship um, uh, and that constraining oil flows uh, is relatively low. But another scenario going forward in terms of an endgame uh, is that we find a kind of deal is struck uh, with the Iranians of some kind, uh, and that at least some of their production comes back on the market. 
And in that sense, I think we have to be prepared for uh, a collapse of the oil price or a big downward pressures um, because we now have, you know, two and a half million barrels that are sort of export onto the market that are bottled up um, in Iran, not to mention um, other kind of outages in places like Libya, Nigeria, and obviously Venezuela, um, which could go up or down uh, uh, over the coming months. Um, but in addition to American, uh, on, you know, with uh, uh, rises in American production, we could start to see a real glut in the market um, and actually see a, a big downside risk uh, to prices. And the other uh, scenario that goes forward uh, is major conflict, which obviously is a lower uh, probability uh, scenario, um, but one I think that we have to be prepared for and we have to think about what are going to be the impacts uh, on shipping. Um, and again, here, uh, you know, even, on a, a, even in a scenario of direct attacks uh, from, Amer from Iranian proxies uh, or even from uh, Iranian state actors, the, uh, the scenario by which the strait is actually closed to shipping um, is really uh, relative, is very low, uh, because uh, at least for any kind of sustained amount of time. Because in that kind of case, we would expect that the Fifth Fleet based in Bahrain would neutralize any kind of uh, Iranian blockage uh, relatively quickly. Um, there's also a risk, though, to energy infrastructures in the area, uh, which is very important. Um, you know, within uh, the, uh, the striking distance of Iranian forces is not only uh, huge amounts of oil production in the eastern province of Saudi Arabia, but also offshore production uh, in the Gulf itself. Uh, what we've seen uh, recently in terms of the Iranian tax are indeed messages about uh, where they can hit shipping and also where they can hit alternative routes. So of the oil that leaves uh, the Strait of Hormuz, there are to some degree alternative uh, export routes that have actually been built up uh, by players in the region over uh, previous 15 years uh, to neutralize or at least to, to, to neutralize to some degree the risk that's, po that's posed uh, by going through Hormuz. And one of those is a major expansion of the east-west pipeline in Saudi Arabia, uh, which now has a capacity of about 5 million barrels per day and about 3 million barrels per day unused so far uh, that can be added on. Uh, that obviously is not anything that can make up for the 20 million barrels that are going through the strait every day. But in the event of a reduced uh, export volume through the strait, either because of delays to shipping, uh, because of having to follow, for example, naval escorts, uh, or because of uh, relatively short-term uh, impacts on energy infrastructures uh, within Saudi Arabia, we can imagine that uh, a lot of oil can actually be diverted uh, through the Red Sea. Uh, uh, and, and that includes also, obviously, th going through Yanbu, which is the port on, on the Red Sea, which has also been expanded uh, to accommodate uh, further kind of oil exports. Um, and on top of all this, I would say that uh, even, even, even where we see that there are risks to uh, the volumes that are leaving the area, uh, we have to remember that uh, the International Energy Agency and, uh, and various other countries that are non-IEA members maintain large amounts of strategic oil stocks to respond to exactly the kind of disruptions uh, like this. Um, uh, and those strategic stocks uh, are, 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 are really large in number. We're talking about 3 billion stocks uh, inside IEA countries and about 650 million uh, to 670 million of those are uh, U.S. stocks in the SPR alone. So we're, we're talking, when we're thinking about a couple of million barrels uh, per day 
that are at risk uh, in, in per perhaps uh, given various scenarios, uh, the coverage from strategic stocks would be more than sufficient uh, to make up for the kind of volumes that we would be talking about uh, for uh, a period of several months, uh, uh, several weeks, or even months. Um, so overall, I would say that um, while supply, you know, while there are major risks, and while this is a huge uh, area of concern for uh, the oil market and for oil exports, um, supplies in general um, are remarkably resilient. Um, and I think we've seen that in the past, and they're becoming more resilient, not only with uh, increased uh, volumes uh, and alternative export routes, but also in terms of the ability of companies like Saudi Aramco uh, to, uh, to, to repair infrastructures and the resiliency of infrastructures uh, that's been built up over the last 10 to 15 years. At the same time, the market can be very sensitive. And even if we don't know uh, going forward um, whether we're going to see major upside risks or downside risks, the amount of volumes that are sort of shifting tack in terms of being taken off the market on one side, potentially being added to market on the other side, are very large, which means that the potential swings in prices can be similarly uh, uh, sensitive. Um, so I would say that uh, at, at the end of the day, this is a very important area to be looking at. Uh, and the, the response of the market is going to be similarly uh, extreme. However, in terms of the actual volumes that come out, um, I think that we should know that, uh, the, that this, the market is likely to continue to be well supplied. And to the degree that uh, production does not meet demand or overshoots demand, it's going to be much more issues that are happening on a global scale than necessarily what's happening in the region. And we can follow up that with questions. Thanks very much. Uh, good afternoon, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I want to thank Dr. Anthony and his organization for their extraordinary work over the years and for the opportunity to speak today. And I'd also like to thank the members of the audience, uh, particularly the members of the Diplomatic Corps, who are working in one of the most uh, challenging diplomatic environments of any career, doing, doing tremendous work. It's, a, it's an honor to have you here. Uh, I should begin by saying I consider myself apolitical. I've worked closely with five administrations and have spent about 16 years abroad in a variety of places. Um, I've worked the Iranian issue since the um, mid-80s, let's put it that way. I was the intelligence advisor to the nuclear talks from the earliest meetings in Oman to the final meeting in Vienna. I was also present at the um, detainee discussions. To correct one note, Mansour Arbabsiar was not released as part of those discussions. He remains in a federal penitentiary. Uh, thank you. Uh, I, I would like to maybe put my comments a little differently from the perspective of somebody who's seen the movie four or five times. Uh, I've watched a variety of administrations handle this issue and players in the field. The Gulf Cooperation Council is going through an extraordinary period of change. It's challenge and opportunity. We have changes in leadership. We have changes in economies. We have changes in societies. This is happening in a social dynamic which is never seen such, um, um, such conditions in the past. There are also extreme challenges with unemployment, particularly with the rising role and the wonderfully rising role of women in the region. Education is spreading throughout the region and that is promoting both opportunities and discontent from youth who are looking for the jobs their educations have provided them. And finally, you have the issue of social media, which has brought changes into the region that have both been positive and challenging. Uh, the Iran issue, however, is a constant, but 
I think the word constant is something you need to consider in terms of policy of the various players. Uh, the Trump administration's policy is remarkably similar in many ways to that of President Obama and to President Bush 43. In essence, there is a desire to avoid um, a conventional conflict, a desire to avoid uh, the issue of regime, regime change. There is a focus on long-term economic tools in favor of pressuring the regime. Uh, in essence, what you aim for with economic sanctions is a small meeting in the Supreme Leader's office in which the senior most advisors and the Supreme Leader say, is this potential political price caused by economic unrest worth the price of involvement in Yemen, involvement of Syria, et cetera, et cetera? You also have on the U.S. side a desire for deterrence, and we've just seen some, uh, I think, remarkably smart behavior by the Trump administration, which assigned a number of troops who are in essence to improve the defense of American forces and the placement of the carrier uh, strike group, which along with our normal um, uh, personnel, and I've worked closely with the commanders of CENTCOM going back Gracious, I went back to Norman Schwarzkopf, and, um, um, uh, and he wasn't even a CENTCOM commander then. Um, uh, and we now have in the Gulf a military power which I would describe as a couple of hairs south of Wrath of God. And the Iranians know this. And the Iranian military, which is quite uh, professional and quite um, um, seasoned, they understand what their weapon capacity can do and what our weapon capacity can do. They know what a aircraft carrier strike group, uh, B-52s and other um, uh, capacities we have at Udaid, Arifjan and uh, Manama um, can bring to the table. Having that carrier strike group in the Sea of Oman, however, demonstrates constraint as well at the same time shows the, um, the Iranian military will know what we can do from that environment. I think it's the right type of messaging. But let's talk about Iran for a moment because the consistency is equally uh, the same there. Since 1992, when Iran changed its military doctrine, Iran has followed a path of, in essence, um, no conventional wars. We can't we don't want to lose the manpower. We don't have allies. We won't acquire great weaponry. We won't um, um, uh, be able to sustain the economic loss. And fighting, in essence, uh, what many now call um, a hybrid war or gray zone war, basically uh, using others to die for your cause. Um, beginning in 2003, however, this took off. And it wasn't the US invasion of Iraq that enabled this. It was actually the absence of a Western policy and a policy of those in the region to constrain Iran from behaving, as Secretary Pompeo would say, like a normal nation. Iran did not need to send the Quds Force into Iraq. It did not need to send the Badr Corps into Iraq. It could have sent the Red Crescent. It could have sent its foreign ministry. It didn't need to assign ambassadors from the Quds Force. But it did. And in part because, as, as Henry Kissinger stated, Iran has got to decide whether it's a cause or a, um, or a country. But the reality is it's both, and its structure is unable to separate the two. The Quds Force as a unit and as a capacity has not existed on the planet anywhere else in the world since the Treaty of Westphalia maybe a few years under the Soviet Union in the, in the 1917 period. But the international community has tolerated this. And for many years, and I was part of discussions on three administrations on the sanctioning of the IRGC, which the Trump administration recently concluded, the issue was the Quds Force is unique and malign in a terrorist organization, but they wear uniforms. And they're part of an organization which has tanks and airplanes and does other things which aren't terrorist related. How can you do this? And that was a policy call not to do it, just as it's a policy call to do this. 
But beginning in 2013 is really when the world changed with Iran. And Iran had, has sustained hundreds of losses in Syria, not just from the Quds Force, but also from its ground forces, its Artesh regular military, its, its militia, the besiege. Iran has been transformed into a regional state. We have members of the Fourth Estate, the press here, and I often say, if we had a conventional conflict in the region, would you write about it? And they answer, yes, and they're wrong. Uh, we have, have had uh, Israel conduct 300 airstrikes uh, in response to Syrian air defenses. That's an air war. That's continuing. We have had more than 240 missiles, Iranian provided or enabled, from Yemen fired against civilian targets, which include an international community, which include American citizens. Missiles do not turn left and right over the heads of Americans. We have Patriot batteries popping off routinely. That's a missile war. We have had air, naval activity in the Red Sea, which is identical to that going on in the, in, the Gulf, in the Gulf at present. And there wasn't a lot of notice. But the 4 plus, 4.5, 4.6 million barrels of oil a day, which go through the Red Sea and the Babel Mandab, and indeed the rest of the world trade, 12% of the world's rice, makes the Red Sea arguably more important for global trade than the Strait of Hormuz. Nonetheless, that conflict and the conflict in the Gulf, it's a form of naval war. And finally, you have cyber activity the Iranians have conducted since 2007 against their own uh, people and against others throughout the region, to include right now, there's been a spike in the last year, year and a half, against um, several of the states, uh, I would say Oman, uh, the Emirates, and Saudi Arabia have been in all of those countries and have spoken with their heads of state down a handful of times in recent months, and they've talked about this. You have all the pieces of a conventional war disaggregated, but because they've been disaggregated and in areas where the world has no, longer, no longer pays much attention, we don't call it an actual conflict. So if you're in Iran, you basically have a hybrid war where you are conducting operations through other players, and there is no international response. So where, where will this go in coming months? Again, in some ways, having seen the movie, I think the answer is relatively clear, and it's not, it's not hard. The Trump administration will continue to avoid conventional war. They will continue to maintain significant economic pressure. They will continue to deter U.S. troops. They will almost certainly strike if Americans or a major aircraft a carrier event is, take, is killed, but, or is, is hit. But drones are not a reason to start a war. And indeed, President Obama's response to the Iranian attempt to shoot down a predator observation drone in November 2012, five days before the U.S. presidential election, was not to go to war. And there are, there are ter territorial lines. We've seen some of those up there. There are others. It's extremely complicated. You don't go to war, but that's why you use drones. You will see more of this from the Trump administration, but also a heavy emphasis on pulling together a diplomatic coalition of generally unwilling partners. This is not new either. I was there during the buildup of sanctions in 2007. Europe was unwilling. Most of the world was unwilling. Indeed, parts of the Gulf were unwilling. And it took several years to pull together sanctions that counted. And sanctions themselves are inherently a long-term tool. If someone tells you that maximum pressure has failed, you should stop listening. Uh, maximum pressure or unprecedented sanctions or ex extraordinary sanctions as President Bush or President Obama or President Trump have each called them take years to succeed. Sanctions to a country are like money problems in a bad relationship. It's not the money problems that causes the relationship to fail, but they accelerate the corrosiveness. 
But on Iran's side, and here, become, here is the danger, what we need to consider, <coughs> Iran only has a couple of options. First, they have defiant bluster and a domestic narrative they must maintain. They're not going to negotiate, and when people talk about Iran negotiating, they seem to forget that there's no one in Iran with whom we can negotiate. If you wish to be the next supreme leader, would you raise your hand and say, I think we can negotiate with the Americans? If you wish to be the next supreme leader, will you say we can compromise on Yemen, Syria, Iraq, missiles, or the nuclear program? The current internal strategic <coughs> environment in Iran, strategic environment, is not conducive to negotiations. And we should prepare ourselves that may not be until you have a new supreme leader. And that, that, that's a different dynamic entirely. President Rouhani has no power. Javed Zarif is the most mendacious official I've known since Baghdad Bob. But fine, and I will close with you, where is the danger in coming months? If you are Iran, you only have unconventional tools to undertake attributable but deniable strikes. Your goal is to produce commodity and oil <coughs> pops in the international economy. Not, not because they and of themselves cause a problem. What you're attempting to do is to tell states ranging from China to Brazil, Finland to Vietnam, how much more money did you pay today because of sanctions, and do you really care about Yemen, Syria, Iraq, or missiles? The Iranian game plan is quite consistent. Their goal is to seek these countries to constrain the United States from sanctions. It's unlikely to work. And what that means is, at a certain point, Iran, and I will close on this, and we're running out of time, Iran is in a position where it can only escalate. It's relatively strong at present. Unrest has not been cohesive. And arrest is, an unrest has not reached the point where it's a problem to the administration. But the nature of these sanctions, combined with the unprecedented and simultaneous ecological, political, and social problems in Iran, mean that unrest is inevitable. For Iran to succeed right now, they need the world to tell Donald Trump, stop with sanctions and come up with a compromise in the region. To do that, Iran will have to escalate to a point where it can catch the world's attention. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Rani. I'll, yeah, I'll, make, I'll make it quick. Uh, great panel, great discussion. I think two, two questions I, I see dominant here is one of them is, are we going to war, and how effective is the U.S. policy or strategy on Iran? Now, on, uh, are we going to war? If you go back to Carter, back the uh, U.S. hostages, they, they were there for, <coughs> excuse my voice because I, I don't feel good today. 444 days they were in there. Uh, they tried rescue hostages, but we did really nothing against Iran proper. And then under, under Reagan, we had the uh, marine bombing, we had the embassy bombing, we had uh, uh, hostages that went on also under Bush one. We didn't really retaliate or did anything against Iran, and Iran proper. proper. Same thing under Clinton, same thing even under Bush second in, in Iraq. We know that Iran was un, behind many, uh, you know, had blood on, U.S. blood on their hands and under, uh, over about 500 soldiers or service members were killed in, in Iraq. And we know Iran has something to do with it. Uh, did nothing about that. Even under Obama, I mean, they, they fired a, a missile a uh, coastal missile back from Iran on Mason, I think back in 2016. Yeah, we retaliated against the Houthis, but we know it's Iran behind it, but did nothing against Iran. Current administration, they fired, they shot down one of our uh, UAVs. I mean, President Trump had a chance to do something about it and hit 
Iran proper somewhere, and also did not. In the meantime, we actually went to Iraq twice. We striked in there. We're still in Iraq. We went to Afghanistan. We striked Sudan. We striked Syria. We striked Yemen. And we've been everywhere, but not, not Iran. What about the strategy? How effective is the U.S.? effective our strategy against them. As I mentioned, I mean, I don't see an effective strategy as part of our foreign policy kind of change, but, but how about Iran? Iran has been consistent since, since day one. Um, currently, Iran, they're in four countries. We all know that, right? Controlling four, four capitals, four countries. Um, uh, the, rise, the rise of ISIS kind of brought everybody together, brought the coalitions, brought the GCC, everybody uh, lower, lower some of the, ten, uh, the tensions. And, uh, but then, then, uh, this, then the uh, <coughs> JCOPA with, uh, that brought more tension into the, uh, into the, the region, um, Iran took advantage of that, started more pressure in, in Yemen. Uh, Houthis took on Sana'a, another, when Sana'a fell, U.S looked at it as an internal, internal issue, didn't do much about it, uh, and at the, at the same time, Iran was actually taking, taking a note of that. Uh, what happened is Saudis decided to, take, to, to do, form their own coalition. That was the first coalition outside Western powers, and they, they won in there. Uh, some people think, you know, they know that military is, uh, will not solve anything, but they had to do a military strike. They, what they did initially, at least, they stopped the Houthis. So Iran, I mean, Yemen, uh, Yemen is not under the under the Iranian control, fully under the Iranian control, like pretty much maybe Lebanon or Iraq or Syria. I mean, there's still still fighting going on in there, but they're not there yet. But the same thing, Iran continued to raise the tensions. Uh, the Saudi-led coalitions stopped the Yemen, the Houthis from taking Aden, but with the Iran raised the tension. How did they do that? By modified some of the missiles we, we saw earlier. So they modified missiles, they modified UAVs, they introduced mines, they introduced coastal missiles, and yet also we didn't encounter any of that. And so, and then they also start targeting the uh, international airports. International community, U.S. didn't do anything about that. President Trump, uh, the Trump administration, administration came in and they canceled the JCOPA. So what happened with the, what the Iranians retali retaliated even further by start striking the oil, oil tankers, uh, strike oil pipelines, desalinization plant in, in, uh, in, in Saudi Arabia. So at least the Iranian, they're, 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 I see them as consistent. They have a strategy and they're moving with it without stop. They're not really, don't care about who's in the White House or what's going on in Europe. Um, uh, they're constantly reinventing themselves around this, the Wilayat al-Faqih or the Khomeini uh, construct, and I don't think they're about to stop. Uh, just uh, I think the uh, Western world, the U Europe and the United States, has to figure how to, how to stop how to stop this uh, four years of uh, open warfare, like they've talked about it, the ind indirect approach to warfare, which is uh, and it's, uh, very costly on both sides. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll end it with a little story, but uh, <coughs> Dr. Anthony talks about my time in the UAE. And um, usually when, uh, in, uh, in the UAE, uh, some of the taxi drivers, I don't know how many, but some of them are actually from Afghanistan. And sometimes if I go in the cab and I see somebody listening to the radio Farda, right, in Farsi, so I try to practice my Farsi with them. 
So once I said, walked in there, there was a Farsi, I said, hey, Salamala, Ali Shumashatari, hello, how are you? I said, oh, good for you. I said, he said, oh, Shumai Rani Hasdam, are you Iranian? I said, no, no, nakhir, man Lubnani Hasdam, I'm Lebanese. Oh, Hezbollah, very good, very good. <laughs> so here's, here's an Afghan working in the UAE, and we're in Afghanistan trying to help him and trying to help his country, and he's saying, thumbs up for Hezbollah. So I landed there. <laughs> All right, uh, we have um, Tom. Uh, no, we have to till five o'clock or five. All right, we have 15 minutes uh, uh, for questions, so I'm going to ask uh, several questions and um, raise your hands if you want to respond to any of them, all of them, some of them, none of them, okay? Um, what's the difference between the Department of Defense and Department of uh, State, uh, if any, in their posture, their positions, their policies, their actions or attitudes, if any, okay? Um, another one, uh, given that in the case of uh, America's invasion of Iraq, uh, there were so few among the decision makers, policy planners who had had empirical experience on the ground, uh, could there be a show of hands amongst those on the panel of those who spent uh, a month or more uh, traveling around in Iran and meeting with the Iranian people? Okay. I can't answer that. Uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> I've been to Los Angeles. One can't answer that, and I don't think it's because of a low IQ. Um, it's for another reason there. Um, China, does that figure in at all uh, right now because of the, where the administration is and the issues uh, with regard to the most popular country on the planet and its uh, uh, extraordinary uh, dependency upon uh, the hydrocarbon fuels coming from this uh, region and, and through the straits. Uh, and uh, Mr. Rule, if you can uh, develop um, the Red Sea aspect that you mentioned because uh, I agree with you. It's far less uh, focused upon, and the Babel Mandeb, let's be serious, is uh, not even half as wide as the uh, Hormuz Strait is. If you say 22 miles or 21 miles, take a pick for the Hormuz Strait, uh, Babel Mandeb between seven and nine miles, come on. Uh, which one is the more uh, vulnerable in terms of attack? Uh, I think the answer is, uh, is in the question. Uh, how might the Iranian public feel about a possible war with the U.S. and its allies. Maybe that's on your side, uh, Kirsten, or yours too, Mr. Uh, Rule. Uh, how has the U.S. military been preparing in anticipation that a war could break out in the uh, Raven Gulf? As, as you mentioned, uh, uh, Colonel Dahouk, uh, <laughs> there have been no end of pro uh, provocations, uh, rhetorical as well as uh, nitpicking or uh, uh, mosquito bites, et cetera, versus a, a body blow against the United States. How many mosquito bites uh, add up to uh, a real irritation that requires a, a response? Um, in light of the recent cyber attack on an Iranian-backed militia and Iran's history of facing cyber attacks, what are the possibilities of retaliation? Uh, was there not one against Saudi Arabia um, in the last 
three or four years uh, to Saudi Aramco uh, shut down or at least crippled uh, uh, part of their uh, cyber <coughs> facilities for five days or more. Um, what was the impetus behind the recent provocations by Iran? Was there a specific reason for the attacks or just more of the same escalation, serving up a different uh, entree on the menu? These are among the questions, and let's see if there's any other one there. Um, what can you tell us about a passenger vehicle that was not shot down while flying in Iranian airspace? Why was it there, if you know that? It's me. <clears throat> Why would Iran not build up its nuclear forces since the United States left the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, uh, what kind of deterrence could be created? This is a basic question that uh, Iranians, uh, pro-Iranians, uh, people who empathize with Iran, uh, frequently ask, and uh, there's seldom a, a persuasive uh, response or adequately informed uh, a response. How should the national defense strategy shift, if at all, when considering Iran's near-peer capabilities with anti-access area denial weapons and oh, the America's <laughs> lack of experience fighting such an adversary? Another unusual question, but uh, relevant, timely, and, um, and appropriate. Last one. Uh, you make a coherent argument for a deliberate Iranian attack on the petrochemical carrying ships. Is it possible, to what extent is it possible that this attack was executed by the Revolutionary Guard without, without knowledge or consent of the Rouhani-led or representative? Any, raise your hand. I'll take well, the last one. Let's take them all. Let's take uh, one each, and then we, if we have time, we have another four rounds. I'll, I'll take the last one. one. I'll take the last one. Okay. So, um, uh, first off, I have to thank Mr. Rule for correcting my error of fact, and also in his remarks on the detrimental effect of uh, financial problems on a bad marriage, I have to congratulate him on being in league with my second and third wives. Um, the... Uh, uh, <laughs> um, it is quite possible that um, the decision to attack the chemical tankers, the uh, Kokoro Courageous and the Front Altair, was done without direction at the highest levels. Um, what we know from Dave Christ's magisterial work on the tanker war, um, called the Twilight War, uh, is that um, IRGC commanders at a relatively low level are given the freedom of action to conduct uh, operations of this level. And it's quite plausible, and people may know more than I do, I'm just looking at this from the outside, that given that the um, you know, Iranian government was meeting with the Japanese prime minister, the attack on a Japanese tanker was intended to ensure that those talks went in a way that the IRGC or some other hardliners didn't want. Thank you for your discipline. Uh, two and a half minutes. Uh, thanks very much. Okay, well, I'm going to respond to the question about China. 
uh, as being a very large uh, oil consumer and oil importer from the region. Um, indeed, China imports uh, upwards of 40-45% of their imports uh, from the Gulf, so significantly less uh, than the President has uh, claimed on Twitter, uh, but still very uh, significant in itself. Um, and uh, indeed, it's the economic relationship between China and the Gulf uh, has been increasing significantly, uh, not in the context of energy and also in the context of Belt and Road and other kind of port investments, uh, particularly in Oman. Um, but from Saudi Arabia in particular, also China imports uh, about 20% uh, of its oil. Uh, the question then becomes, uh, what's the role uh, of China and other Asian importers uh, in terms of contributing to uh, the security environment uh, around the, the area? Um, and I, I would just say that uh, while there uh, is certainly room for, for them to step up, and we've seen, uh, for example, uh, the Indians taking an active role uh, in providing uh, military escorts to their flagged ships uh, and, and, uh, and oil tankers, um, that, uh, that, that, that the, the moment for uh, the American government or for the president to uh, imply uh, that we might be reducing uh, our uh, commitment to security of, or freedom of navigation in the strait as a result of uh, decreased oil dependence um, is probably inopportune, uh, particularly for a market who's looking for uh, stability and a stable commitment to those uh, straits staying open. So while there might be sort of a long-term argument, I would just say that the timing uh, of that kind of burden-sharing discussion uh, might not be uh, one that's very conducive to, to, to markets looking for stability. Thank you. We're going to skip over you, uh, Colonel. Uh, okay. uh, you'll be the wrap-up one. Oh, you, really? You'll be the commentator on the answer set. Uh, very quickly, I'll, I'll address very quickly the question about the difference between DOD and DOS policy right now. And I would say that actually what we're seeing is an alignment between the senior levels at state and the NSC. So this is very different, however, um, you know, Brian Hook and Secretary Pompeo, they think um, a bit more hawkishly than do our ambassadors and chargés in the region now. So if you went out to our posts, you might hear a slightly more cautious response than you would from the senior levels here in Washington at the State Department. We find that defense um, uh, lags behind, and I don't mean that in an intellectual way, I mean that in a, in a hawk way, which would sort of be counter to what we'd expect from, from a defense department, but really it's a sign of intelligence that they are very cautious because they know they would be carrying the brunt of that task were something to break out. So we see them sort of uh, being much more cautious and, and, uh, and less hawkish than we do senior levels of state and the NSC at the moment. This is a change, for instance, when we were discussing Syria policy last year, we had uh, State Department and DOD aligned in contrast to the NSC very often. So, so these do shift, and it really is issue-specific. I'll, um, I'll jump to the, quickly to the question about the Iranian public and how they would feel about a war with the U.S. I don't think it would surprise any of us that um, our estimation is that they would definitely not support this. Um, but we would expect them to very nationalistically get behind their government were it to happen. Not only do we know that from, from polling and social science surveys that we've seen come out of the region about where the Iranian population sits on things like developing nuclear technology. Their, their feelings on that are, well, gosh, if everyone else can have it, so should we. It's a national right of ours to develop it. 
um, when you when you hit them with the discussion about whether or not they'd prefer social services to this, then their answer is slightly different. But when it comes to whether or not the U.S. should dictate to them whether or not they're allowed to develop this weapon, there's a resounding no, the U.S. should not. So, And I would say this, this opinion would be exacerbated by the fact that we don't believe that they are aware of the nature and scope of their regime's sponsorship of proxy activities. So if you tell them America's going to go to war with you and you don't really understand why you're considered you know, anathema in the global environment at the moment, then that would make you even more likely to align very strongly behind your government in such a conflict. Uh, we respect Mr. Rule's uh, uh, forfeiting or inability or, uh, to uh, answer the question that was put by one of the questioners. Of yes, whether or not I've been in... Indeed. No comment. No the caveat comment. on that is that no one with a security clearance is allowed to do that currently. So no one with a security clearance is allowed to travel to Iran currently. So it really, while many people may have wished to, we've been limited if you've been in government. Same thing with Iraq, with that letters too. Some, 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 some brief general comments regarding the U.S. military and the Iranian military. The, I don't think it's a surprise to say the U.S. military has some exquisitely refined and highly capable uh, capacity to employ against Iran and its surrogates in the region. That's not the right question, though. The right question is what would policymakers ask the U.S. military to do? Because each of those operations comes with a downside. Regarding Iran itself, it's almost uh, a certainty that the attack on the tankers was known to Iran's senior-most leadership, at least as a policy, if not as an actual plan. President Rouhani and Javed Zarif are not relevant factors and generally not part of that. However, the SAM attack on the uh, drone could have been something undertaken by an anti-aircraft element. They have a uh, rather looser set of operational rules, and they have itchy trigger fingers, which has resulted in the deaths of a number of clouds uh, in <laughs> Iran. Um, I'm not making that up. And finally, regarding the Red Sea itself, I think more attention needs to be paid at this in terms of the aspirational uh, purposes of Iran and the nature of the Saudi-Arab coalition conflict. Um, you have to imagine what it would mean to have a, 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 an Ansar al-Houthi element similar to Lebanese Hezbollah 400 miles from Mecca and Medina. You would have to imagine what that means next to uh, the, the Babel Mandab, which as uh, Dr. Anthony correctly stated, is it's about 10 miles uh, if you begin with Purim Island West through which so much of the world's trade, there's communications capacity that goes through there, as well as foodstuff. And there are a number of highly vulnerable governments in the Red Sea, um, in Egypt, and in southern Europe, which would feel the impact of any cessation of, of activity there. And um, uh, my final comment regarding China is that there is a vast effort to push China um, uh, China energy, but where I would look more carefully is, let me give you one, one anecdote that I will close. Imagine a situation where you have a Congress that is hostile towards Saudi Arabia, a U.S. president who's not able to do much about it, you have Iranian missiles hitting Saudi Arabia, and you have a threat of missiles from Yemen. That sounds familiar? Okay, those are the four conditions behind the Saudi acquisition of Chinese DF-2, Eastwind Long March medium-range ballistic missiles in the 1980s. If you are a Saudi leader or an Emirati leader and you've had hundreds of missile strikes on your country and your people, and the U.S. Congress and the British Parliament have just said, we will not provide you with the material to enable you to, to identify and kill those missiles on the ground, and the Chinese government approaches you with such miss missiles at, at rock-bottom prices, what would you say? 
We need to seriously consider the consequences of the acquisition of those, and I apologize for going on, but because the DF-2s had never been seen without a nuclear or chemical warhead, and to the introduce missiles into the region uh, of that nature is extremely costly in terms of potential missile race. Last word. Uh, I want to go back to the, the basic of uh, uh, defense. You guys know about the four major elements of power, you know, the dime, defense, intelligence, information, intelligence, information, military, and economics, right? Uh, so I think we don't know much about the internal dynamics of Iran to execute any of these elements of power effectively. That's one reason why everybody is, I think, faltering a little bit. So. Uh, I think it's best to understand Iran first before we uh, go on and do anything uh, uh, different than that. That's, I'll end it there. All right. Join me, please, in thanking uh, Bob.